I thank everybody for coming. And, um, and I, want to, uh, I want to say that uh, although we took a hiatus for one week, uh, this is the sixth shear uh, in our learning. And tonight we're going to be learning a little bit about a theme that's also, I think, germane to the time of the year that we find ourselves in. Uh, we are in the midst of the parshiot, known as the Shevdin Nechemta, the seven haftoros of uh, consolation or comforting that came after the Tlat Puranusa, the three haftoros foretelling uh, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and the exile of the people. Uh, of course, the first two haftoros of the Tlat Puranusa are known as, uh, are, come from Sefer Yermia. The third one comes from Sefer Yeshaya. And the Shivdit Nechemta, uh, as we mentioned, many of them come from the Navi Yeshaya as well, who's considered a prophet of consolation, whereas Yermia is considered a prophet of destruction. Although I mentioned in the last class, I'm sure everybody remembers, I mentioned in the last class that the picture is actually far more complex, and believe it or not, we're going to take a look, maybe, maybe tonight, we'll get to it, but to look at a, three chapters, a selection from three chapters in Sefer Yermia, which is ostensibly a book that's Kula Churbana, according to the Gemara. Of course, that's in a general sense. We're going to take a look at the three prakim from Perak Lamed to Lamed Gimel, which are considered the chapters of consolation, the chapters of Nechama in Sefer Yermia. So we're going to go back uh, to the last prophecy, really the first prophecy initiating the prophet. We talked about the almond branch and the Sir Nafuach. And uh, for our purposes, we'll translate as the frothing over um, cauldron that signifies the destruction, from the north, um, the, the destruction, the tragedy is going to come down upon the people. And, um, and, and this was frankly the initiation of Yermiao Anavi. I had over here a picture from Vincent van Gogh and uh, an ancient seer, a pot, um, there are other translations as well. Some people call it a tumbleweed uh, rolling over from the north. The dot mikra seems to think that it's referring to the cooking mechanisms that they would use brushes and shrubs to, to cook their food under the seer. So that's what's frothing. Be it as it may, the prophecy, the first prophecy that Yermia tells to the people is that danger is coming and it's coming quickly. It's coming like an almond branch um, blossoms so quickly. So one of the things I wanted to start off with today is the following question, which we're going to be dealing with in earnest. Is the book of Jeremiah all destruction? Remember, the Gemara Baba Basra and Daf told us that the book is Kula Chorbana, which, which is why in the rabbinic understanding, it should have been put out of historical order and Sefer Yermia should, uh, should have appeared right next to the end of the book of Kings to Sefer Malachim, although that's not the chronological order. But that was how the Gemara, that's how Chazal characterized the book of Jeremiah. So I asked this question and I want to show you a beautiful answer that comes from Dr. Hananel Mack, who is, uh, who is a professor, was a professor at Bar-Ilan University, a Bible scholar, and, uh, and I'll just read the English of his answer. I translated over here uh, for everybody to see, but he, I think, deals with the central question that we're going to be dealing with in the next few shiurim. In truth, as opposed to the accepted impressions of Jeremiah as the prophet of, the prophet of destruction, the book of Jeremiah does indeed contain prophecies of consolation, some of the most powerful and beautiful that appear in all scripture. Moreover, even the prophecies of destruction and the difficult rebuke 
contain words of encouragement and consolation that soften the words of destruction and strife. And these prophecies of consolation are spread throughout the book and to a certain extent balance the foreboding and depressing nature of the prophecies of destruction. Furthermore, in chapter 31, which is the main chapter of consolation in the book, it is written, and it shall come to pass that like I, has watched, like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to overthrow and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. Verse 27. So if you take a look, here's the Pasuk that appears in chapter 31. These are the four languages of destruction that we already saw Yermia say, and you'll forgive me for scrolling up for a second, but we saw Yermiyahu Anavi say in his very first prophecy over here. In chapter 1 of the book of Jeremiah, we see that his job is going to be talking about the fact that there's going to be a nitisha, a nititza, lahavid, laharos, livnot, lintoa. Two verbs of rebuilding and, and regeneration, and four, describing, uh, describing destruction. So we find this reflected almost in a mirror image over here in chapter 31. Again, the Pasuk. Vahayakashir shakaditi. Shakaditi, by the way, is the same shoresh and the same usage over here as the shakad, as the almond branch that was used in the very first image that the prophet saw from God in his initiation. Vayakashir shakaditi alehem. Lintosh lintots laros labid ulehara. Cain. So there's five words over here of destruction, but God is saying, just as I have given you this very scary image of how quickly the destruction and the ibud and the heres will come, so too the rebuilding will come just as quick. You know, the Gemara talks about the fact that Yeshua Sashem, the Gemara says, Hayom in today the Messiah could come if we were to just listen to God's words. That we should understand that the Geula, that as quickly or as shocking the advent of destruction, so too will be the advent of redemption as well and the rebuilding of all these things. May it come speedily in our days. He continues, he says, it is clear that this verse parallels in structure and content that which was said to Jeremiah in his initial prophecies. a very strong chiddish by Dr. Mack, I think, over here. And thus places both aspects of the book, let me just do a little editing over here, of the book in relief to one another, thus cementing the place of the prophecies of consolation therein. Once the prophecies of destruction and strife are fulfilled, there will come a time for the words of consolation also promised in the prophecy of Jeremiah. And that's what we're going to sort of take a look at today, but first a, a story from the Gemara. And the Gemara tells the story. I'm not going to read it inside. It's over here in the Hebrew. If you'd like to see, it appears on the very last daf of Meseches Makos. And the Gemara tells over there, and I'll stop the share so I can share the story with you. The Gemara tells the story of four rabbis that are walking in, uh, in Israel, and these four venerable Tanaim, uh, we're talking Rabbi Akiva, uh, Rav Lazar, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Gamliel, I believe, that they are walking, uh, they're walking on Har, uh, on Har Tzion, and they eventually make it to Harabayim. And the rabbis, this is a famous story, the rabbis see a fox starting in and out of the ruins, and the rabbis begin to cry, they begin to weep, and then they say, uh, and, and Rabbi Akiva begins to laugh. And the rabbis turn to Rabbi Akiva and they say, Akiva, what are you laughing for? And Rabbi Akiva turns to them, he says, what are you crying for? And the rabbis say, this is the place that's written about it, 
if somebody who's not a Kohen Gadol approaches the Sancta Sanctorum, the Makam of the Mikdash and the Kudosh HaKedoshim, they approach that place in the wrong time or the wrong person and they die. And uh, we see a fox darting in and out of it. It's a, like a ruin. It's a forest. Right? And we shouldn't cry. Rabbi Kiva says, no, you don't understand. We have a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Navi Yeshaya tells us that uh, he connects the prophet Uriah with the prophet Zechariah. And the prophet Uriah and Zechariah are separated by generations. So what's the connection between them? He says Uriah's prophecy, which is repeated in Micha, is, is that Tzion Kesadet Ticharish, that Zion will be plowed over like a field. And that's a prophecy of utter destruction. And on the other hand, we have Zechariah that's mentioned in the same Pasuk in Zechariah, who comes many generations later. Zechariah tells us there'll be a time when young and old will be able to play in the streets of Jerusalem, which is a prophecy of consolation. So the Navi Yermia links up, the, the Navi, sorry, I, my apologies, Rabbi Akiva, rather, links up the notion that the words of the prophet Uriah are seemingly fulfilled. We have seen now that it is indeed a plowed over field. This is utter destruction. It doesn't get worse than this. And yet at the same time, we know that just as this has been fulfilled, so we will too see the prophecy of Zechariah be fulfilled as well, that young and old will play in the streets of Jerusalem. Something that we've seen uh, fulfilled chalkit, fulfilled partially in our days. So Rabbi Kiva says, if I know that one, if I know that I've hit rock bottom, then I know that the prophecy of consolation will be fulfilled as well. And uh, Kiva says, that's why I laugh. It's a laughter of joy and a laughter of seeing, ha, it came true. And the rabbis turn to Rabbi Akiva and they say, Akiva nechamtanu, Akiva nechamtanu. Rabbi Akiva, you have consoled us. So this is very much the notion that I'm trying to bring out over here that Yermia in his initiation to prophecy has these Dalit Lashonos, these four languages of destruction and two of rebuilding and talking about how this destruction will come fast. And that is flipped on its head 30 chapters later in chapter 31 when he's told that it's going to also be the opposite effect as well, that the consolation and the rebuilding and the reversal of our fortunes will be turned as well. So that is exactly, I think, the notion that Dr. Mack is bringing out in this uh, beautiful insight. That having been said, let's take a look at what this looks like in the first mission of the Navi Yermia. So the Navi Yermia's first mission really is the unification of Yehuda and Yisrael. Now, I'm not going to... Uh, rehash all the background. Uh, you can listen to the first few shiurim. But you have to remember that after the first two Davidic kings, the dynasty split. Well, the king, the kingdom split into two. You had ten tribes of the northern kingdom, Yisrael, as they're called. And you had the two tribes of the southern kingdom of Malchus Beis David. And that was Yehudim bin Yamin. And uh, they had control over the base of Mikdash. And for, to a certain extent, uh, there was a, a completely separate area of worship, a, cre- a completely separate pulchan ritual that was in the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was basically split. That fight got very, very bad uh, to the point of civil war. And even as we're going to see to the perhaps unintended consequences of the exile of the 10 northern tribes. Yirmiyahu's first mission, which we're going to learn about tonight, is to unify Yehuda and Yisrael. There can't be a geula, there can't be a redemption, or perhaps I'll say it a little bit better, a byproduct of redemption is going to be coming together with the unification of the monarchy, the unification of everyone back under Malchus Beis David, underneath the Davidic dynasty, to the, the reversal of this terrible split amongst the people. We also mentioned, we also mentioned a little bit that the Mishnah in Tanis tells us, we celebrated last week, Tu B'Av, 
The Mishnah Tanis tells us that one of the reasons that Tuba Av, well, the Gemara says that one of the reasons that Tuba Av is such a joyful day is because it was one of the day, one of the things that was done was that Yeravim had erected roadblocks from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. And Yeravim's roadblocks prevented anybody that had maybe wanted to for the northern kingdom from making their way to Viola Laregel, from making their way to Yerushalayim. They couldn't pass. So there was a king afterwards, his name is escaping me at this moment, there was a king afterwards who eventually said to people, you know, do what you want. You want to go down to Yerushalayim? You can go down to Yerushalayim. And he removed those roadblocks and that day was Tu Ba'av. So that was the extent of the split. That's how bad it was. We have a prophecy that's given to the Navi Yeshaya who ministered, prophesied to both kings from Yehuda and Yisrael. So the Navi Yeshaya says the following in the seventh chapter. Koamar, uh, I got corrected last week on this. I, I, I try not to put uh, the tetragrammaton. I try not to put Shem Havaya on my source sheets because uh, if anybody prints out or if I print out, I don't want to accidentally create real deal Shemus. Um, so I, so in, in Nach, you'll find Hashem Elohim. So this, uh, so this could be pronounced Hashem Elohim. So Ko Amar Hashem Elohim, Lo Takum V'Lo Tihiyeh, Ki Rosh Aram Damesek V'Rosh Damesek Ritzin, Uve'od Shishin V'Chamei Shana, in 65 years hence, Yachit Ephraim E'am. Ephraim, the northern kingdom, says the Navi Yeshaya, will cease to be a people. They will no longer be, they won't even be there anymore. They, will, they, will, they won't be people anymore. What's he talking about? Uh, so he's prophesying really the utter destruction and the eventual, uh, the eventual sending away of, <laughs> the eventual sending away of the northern kingdom, which eventually happened under King Sancheirim. So what's the background over here? So he's talking about Rosh Aram. Now, I'm going to introduce, we've talked about the Babylonians, we've talked about the Egyptians, we've talked about the Assyrians. I'm going to introduce one more player, and you have to remember we're dealing about 100 years earlier. One of the players was Aram. Aram, according to my understanding, and somebody could obviously always feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. According to my understanding, Aram wasn't necessarily a kingdom in the way that we describe Malchut, Yehud, uh, Malchut Beit David, or the kingdom of Parunacho, or the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, or the kingdom of Tilgash Peleser, uh, that we're going to discuss tonight of the Assyrians. Aram was rather a collection of, uh, a diverse collection of nomadic tribes uh, who, who would cause problems for the kingdoms that were around at the time, uh, border raids and, and insurrection. Uh, so the Aram's capital, or the place that they really that they really had settled most, or the concentration of their power, was Damascus, Damascus, which is the capital of modern-day Syria. And the Rosh Damascus is Ratzin. So Ratzin, or Rezin, as it is in here in the JBS translation, Ratzin is a, it was an, Aram, an Aramean chieftain. And it gives new meaning, by the way, if you understand that the Arameans were basically this wandering tribe, it gives new meaning to this notion of my father, Arami Oved Avi, my father was a wandering Aramean that we talk about in the Haggadah, that they truly were a nomadic wandering people. And uh, what happened was that Aram was threatening and Aram was, uh, Aram was projecting this instability towards the southern kingdom. So what happened was, is that King Ahaz, who we'll see in a second, King Ahaz of Judah, who was the king of Malchus based David at the time, sought to seek out the protection of the Assyrians at this time. The king of the Assyrians was Tilgash Peleser, Tilgash Peleser III, by the way, who was, um, who was actually the first Assyrian king 
to create, I'm going to stop, share for a second, just so I could see people. I know I'm giving a lot of information right now. Uh, Tilgash Pileser was the third, uh, the third to go by that name. Uh, he also went by the name the Supreme Ruler of the Universe and other very lofty titles. And he instituted a policy that later found its expression with Sancheirib, uh, later on, the Gemara says that Sancheirib mixed up all the nations. One of the uh, modes in which Assyria maintained its stranglehold and its dominance over the ancient Near East was forced deportation of, of any people, even preemptive deportation of any people who could threaten a revolt. And hence we have the grandson of Tilgash Pileser known as Sancheirib, and Sancheirib famously exiled the 10 tribes of the north. Sancheirib is also responsible for other halachot that we have nowadays. For example, uh, I'll just toss out an example, you know, in identifying questions of identifying a malik, right? Uh, so we can't identify a malik anymore because we said, Sancheirib came and he forcibly deported people to wherever they felt like in order to contend with potential insurrection. So this was a policy that was really begun by Tilgash Pileser and he was known as uh, apparently he's seen, this is according to the Encyclopedia, uh, the Ju- uh, Encyclopedia Judaica, he was known as one of the greatest military tacticians and generals of all time. Uh, so that's who we're contending with. So to go back, so Ahaz Melech Yehuda sees these Aramean marauders and, and, uh, and, and, and plunderers, he sees them as a threat and he allies himself, he allies himself with Assyria at this time. So remember, we're dealing... We're dealing generations before Yermia and, and everybody we know in Melech Yoshiyahu, they even come onto the scene. So let's take a look a little bit at Sefer Malachim. Uh, just to give you a sense of where, we, where we're holding in Sefer Malachim, the Sefer Malachim we studied earlier, in earlier Shirim, to take a look at the end of the Davidic dynasty is really chapters 31 to 35 of Malachim Beis. When we're talking about this period of time, we're in chapter 16. So let's take who was... Ahaz, and really what we're seeing here is already setting up for what the Navi Yermia is going to have to contend with in his early prophecies and his first mission of uniting, trying to unite Yehuda and Yisrael. In the 17th year of Pekach, who is the king of the northern kingdom, so Ahaz, son of Yotam, begins his reign. And he went in the ways just like one of the northern kings. That is to say, as the Pasuk that I left out in Pasuk Dalit tells us, that he did not follow in the ways of Hashem. Uh, he was a wicked king. And he was so bad that he would even sacrifice his, his children. Apparently it's not just one. His children, he passed through the fire, uh, immolation sacrifice uh, to, to, to the god Moloch. And uh, just like the Tovot Hagoyim, you know, the Gemara tells us, I'll just show you over here. The Gemara tells us in Mesechet Sanhedrin, So apparently one of the children that Achaz tried to pass through fire, that tried to kill, to kill was Chizkiah Amelech, was his son Chizkiah Amelech, we talked about as one of the righteous kings of Yehudah who tried to enact, um, who tried to enact uh, major reforms. And um, it says that Hiskiel was saved by a rather uh, interesting intervention. His mother, uh, realizing he was destined for greatness, also wanting to protect him from being sacrificed. So she... Salmandra, uh, according to Rabbi Steinzaltz, Zechertzadik Levracha, 
passed away this week, which is a very sad, sad thing, a real loss for the Jewish people. So according to Rabbi Steinzaltz, uh, salamanders were assumed to be impervious to fire. Uh, in fact, they were assumed to be born in fire. If you want to study more about this, you can look at Rabbi Slifkin's books. I don't know, uh, I don't know what the reality is. I'm not going to weigh in on that. But the Gemara says that his mother took salamander blood, coated him with it, and that was protecting him from being burnt. So he passed through, much like Avram Avinu, he passed through the test of fire and he survived. Be it as it may, Chizkiyahu HaMelech did survive, and his father, Achaz, who we're talking about now, tried to kill him, tried to sacrifice him. like the abominations, the idols of the heathen nations. So Ritzin, who's the king, or the chieftain of these tribes, so he allies himself together with Pekach of the northern kingdom, and they tried to go to what would be a civil war together with these Arameans on the southern kingdom to fight against them. They, could, they besieged uh, Achaz, but they couldn't win. So Achaz, recognizing they need some backup, he sends messengers to Tilgat Peleser, and he says, I am your servant, I am your child, Save me from Melech Aram and from Melech Yisrael. This is how bad the schism between the northern and southern kingdoms actually was to the extent of civil war, to the extent of the northern kingdom allying itself with outside tribes and nations to destroy the southern kingdom. And Ahaz, and apparently the Navi Yeshaya uh, chides him, not chides him, he excoriates him, for doing this. He says, why, why are you reaching out to the Assyrians? Trust in God. Do this on your own. You don't need to do that. But he does anyway. And he asks for protection. And he says, These are words that could be fit into any prayer. Save me from Melech Aram and from Melech Israel that are coming to uh, fight against me. What happens? So Tilgat Peleser listens to him. So he kills Ritzin, right? Tilgat Lesser is a powerful person, powerful army, powerful military. So they make short work of the Arameans. They capture their capital city. Damascus is now in their hands. So they, 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 and they, and they slaughter the, the, the chieftain. They slaughter Ritzin. So now what happens? So Melech Achaz now, Melech Achaz now says, he goes up to Damasek to meet his protector. And what does he see when he's there? He sees this amazing altar that he had erected. He sees this incredible, uh, these incredible monumental works of Avodah Zarah. So what does he do? Sadly, he says, I got to copy that. And maybe as an act, I don't know if he necessarily fully believed in it. We know that Ahaz, even though he was considered a wicked king, did very patiently, was is at least singled out as having patiently listened to the words of Yeshai. Even if he didn't follow the prophet Isaiah, he patiently listened and he took the rebuke, but he sends back plans to make a similar Mizbeach. And that Mizbeach is actually placed in the Beis HaMikdash and, uh, and it's fashioned. And actually what, what it goes on to describe over here in Sefer Malachim, what it goes on to describe is that a sort of syncretistic worship uh, emerged in the Beis Hamikdash. Syncretistic means that we 
sort of like put two religions and jumble them up together. There's the Assyrian Pulchan, the Assyrian ritual is one of them. And on the other hand, it says that they also have the Kohanim. They're going about their regular priestly activities in the Beis HaMikdash. This is already the slippery slope that Yechizkiah Amel, the son of Ahaz, is going to have to try and, uh, to try and fix and to try and, and, and roll back. But that's exactly what's going on right now. So, so far, we have this setup. And, and, what, and what's basically been foretold is the eventual destruction of the northern kingdom. Because Tilgat Pileser's grandson, Sancheireb, Tilgat Pileser had two sons that ruled after him. Uh, I'm forgetting their names. Sargon, I think, was one of them. Um, the, Sargon II was one of the kings, uh, the sons of Tilgat Pileser. But his grandson, Sancheireb, eventually comes to the northern kingdom and does away with everybody in the northern kingdom. You can wonder why they might have seen the northern kingdom as potential uh, insurgents. Well, that's because Ahaz, Melech Yehuda, had sought out their help to defeat their incursion into the southern kingdom. So everybody's fighting, everybody is terrible, and, and the rift, the schism between the northern and southern kingdom is completely sealed at this point. The northern kingdom is eventually exiled, and these events are what set the picture up for that to happen. So that's where we enter into the Navi Yermia. That's the framework that the Navi Yermia is coming to. So we're now in the third chapter of Sefer Yermia. We're going to look at a selection of Psukim from the third chapter. So Yermia says, God said to me, says Yermiyahu, in the days of Yoshiyahu HaMelech, God said to me, have you seen what happened to the northern kingdom? Have you seen how they have been backsliding? And this word, mashuva, comes from the word shovavim or shovavim or shovav in the modern context, which implies a kind of impetuousness, a childishness. Shovav is almost like a, a hoodlum. Almost Rashi has to resort to fr- old French words to try and elicit or to, to bring out the real meaning of this word meshuva. But that is going to be the way that the sinners of the northern kingdom are going to be referred to more or less in the prophecies of Yirmiyahu. We'll see Shuvabanim Shovavim comes up a little later on. So he basically says to Yirmiyahu, did you see what happened to the northern kingdom? They went under every tree and on top of every high mountain, Batiznisham, and they, they, they played the harlot, they prostituted themselves to other gods. And I want to pause for a second about this pasuk to tell us when this prophecy is coming to Yirmiyahu. Uh, to, Yo, to Yermiyahu. It says it came in the days of Yoshiyahu HaMelech. According to the Das Mikra, uh, when I say Das Mikra, it means this Tanakh that I've been using, uh, preparing most of the Shiurim. This ta- uh, according to the Dat Mikra, they locate this prophecy coming to Yermiyahu in the time when the reforms of Yoshiyahu HaMelech, the Deuteronomistic reforms, had been starting or kicking off in full swing. What we might call, and hopefully you'll forgive me for using this parlance, but that's what the Hebrew parlance is, is a brit chadasha, a new covenant with the people, an attempt to establish a new covenant, maybe to stave off destruction after all these years of idol worship. So this prophecy comes about 35 years before the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, especially at the time that Yoshiyahu is described as having returned the Aron HaBrit, the Ark of the Covenant, back to the Heichal. After Yoshiyahu had removed ostensibly these Assyrian altars uh, that, uh, that Ahaz had brought in. So we're seeing 
this prophecy coming specifically at the time of a reversal of what had happened in the days of Yeshaya and Ahaz. I'll, let's take a look a little bit at the uh, Psukim over here. I hope you could see my screen. Can I just get a thumbs up if people could see my screen? Okay, awesome. So, the, in Sefer Divrei Ayam and Beis, so we have a description of what's going on at this time. I want to just read these few Psukim, and actually we're going to do a, a shtick excursus uh, to talk a, a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant, which I know is always a fascinating topic, which we touched upon. So it says like this, After the discovery of the Sefer Torah that we talked about, and now you see why I spent all that time uh, uh, previewing the history and the Sefer in order to understand these Psukim. So this was already the beginning of this covenant that Melech Yoshiel wanted to do during his reforms. So the people are so moved by the discovery of the Sefer Torah that they want to forge new covenant with Hashem, or Yoshiel HaMelech wants to do that. Yoshiel Melch even celebrates or slaughters the Pesach carbon. Doesn't mean that, I've seen some people say, oh, you know, this is a sign that they, that, that nobody was uh, nobody was observing uh, the Pesach holiday. Uh, nobody was observing Pesach in uh, in those days. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. It, it could mean that many people were celebrating Pesach. It's just that the kings weren't and the elites weren't in Yerushalayim. But Yoshiel makes a point of celebrating Pesach and bringing the carbon Pesach during that year. A sign of uh, again, just as Pesach Mitzrayim was the first sign of the covenant that we forged with Hashem. It's very significant that this Pesach Yoshiyahu is a sign of trying to reforge that covenant, trying to rebuild the, re, uh, the relationship with Hashem. Vayomer la-Leviim, Yoshiyah commands the Leviim ha-mevinim l'chol Yisrael ha-kedoshim la-Hashem, sanctified Levites t'Hashem t'nu esaron ha-kodesh b'bayis asher bana shlomo ben David melech Yisrael. So, want you... This is the Pasuk that we're going to focus on right now. I want you to bring the Aaron HaKodesh to the house Asher Bana Shlomo Ben David Melech Yisrael. Bring the Aaron Kodesh. And if you just read this Pasuk in in its standard way, you say, okay, where was the Aaron beforehand? And why are they bringing it back in? So it makes sense they would bring it back in because there's this whole excitement about forging a new relationship with Hashem, with doing tshuva and reforming. However, um, that... We never, the Aron never moved. The Aron was always there. It just had Assyrian altars right next to it. So what's going on over here? So people pick up on this and they say, and this is, again, this is totally a side point, but it's too cool not to talk about. So what, what's the deal with the Aron in the first base of Mikdash? So we have over here, I'll just show you the commentaries that I put together. The, the bottom, the footnotes is my note. Maybe one day I'll write a book. Uh, I'll turn these shirmen into a book about my, uh, my reading. If, uh, my worthless reading of Sefer Yirmiya, but maybe I'll do it for myself. But it, Rashi says, Rashi says, pshuto, according to Pshat, Menashe and Amon, the wicked kings and forebearers of, uh, uh, the wicked kings and forebearers of, of Melech Yoshiahu, so they didn't remove the Aaron, but they removed the essence of what the Aaron was about because they put Pesach, they put idols underneath it or next to it. I mean, can you think of a bigger affront to God than the Aaron Kodesh having an idol next to it? But that's exactly what they did. Rash says, 
putting the Aron in its place means that it is in the Heichal, it's in the Beis Hamikdash with absolutely nothing else there. So really putting the Aron in its place means removing the idols there. However, the, the plot thickens a little bit because he says, So he says, and Chazal, however, Amru Sha'amar Lulavim Legonzo Sham. So this isn't actually saying that Yoshio Amelch is returning the Aron, the Ark of the Covenant, back to the back to the temple in some act of uh, of renewal, but rather he's doing quite the opposite. He's hiding the Aron. He's placing it in some secret place, perhaps underneath Har Habayit, where it could be preserved and kept. And the Mitzvah Stavit says this as well. Rashi is not the only one that says this and quotes Chazal on this. Mitzvah Stavit says, To hide it and to secret it away. In a hidden place. Shlomo HaMelch had apparently created a special place that the Aron, that the Ark could be hidden so that it wouldn't be taken into exile with the people. We know of other Kalim from the Beis HaMikdash, most famously the menorah taken from the second Beis HaMikdash, which were indeed taken into exile, I don't know, maybe somewhere, uh, maybe somewhere uh, sitting under cobwebs in a Vatican basement or something. But uh, wherever they may be, the Aron was not amongst them. And part of the reason for this, at least in the first Beis HaMikdash, was that Yoshio HaMelech, rather than putting it back in its place, actually hid it and removed the idols. Masbir Arbag. So the Arbag explains because I was troubled by something. I'm, I'm curious. Can anybody tell me what's troubling about this narrative that I'm telling you of Yoshi Amel hiding the Aaron? Just uh, it, all you have to do is uh, you could go to participants, raise hand. I'm curious if anybody uh, is... I was very troubled when I was reading this because, because this seems very strange. Anybody, anybody have a sense of, of what might be strange about this narrative? What's going on over here? supposed to give wait time, but I'll say that one of, the, one of the things that troubled me is the following. You mean to tell me, at the height, Yoshio Amel just discovered a Sefer Torah. He's sending people all throughout the land to purge idolatry. He's focused on, uh, on centralizing worship. Back in the base of Mikdash, he's done Pesach. He's read the Torah in front of everybody. He's doing everything he can to reform and to get the people to do tshuva. Wouldn't this be the greatest time to leave the Aaron and it, right, put it where it's supposed to be. Get rid of the idols, the getchkas that are there, so that it, so that so that this is a sign that we're renewing. I mean, wouldn't this be? So why hide it? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? So, actually, um, so I was so I, I thought it was such a bomb kasha that I was asking. It was such a great question. It just turns out that I don't know enough Gemara because let me show you what the Rabag and what the Gemara do to explain this conundrum of why this would be the time. Specifically now, with all the excitement of the reforms and the tshuva that's happening, why this would be dafka the time to hide it? Let's take a look. The Rabag tells us, and, and I'm sorry, I know that you came to learn Sefer Yirmiya, but I don't know. This is this is has nothing to do with this prophecy. We were just talking about when this was, but look, we could be learning for the rest. Hopefully, we'll be learning for a very very long time. I'm not going anywhere, um, and um, Torah's not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We could learn. And we could take these, uh, these little side trips, these little tangents, because it's really fascinating, I think. The Rabag explains, Like the Mitzvah Stavit said, that Shlomo Melchid apparently fashioned a place for the Aron 
a kind of safe room for the Aaron should something like this happen. Shlomo HaMelech knew that this great Beis HaMikdash that he's building, this awesome structure and building, an edifice to Hashem, is eventually going to be destroyed. So the Rabag is, I was sensitive, I was sensitive to the question that the Rabag asks. Rashi doesn't ask it. Mitzudas David doesn't ask it. They take it for granted. The Rabag spells it out. He says, if, it, if it's not being put into a hidden place, then what's the Pasuk telling us in Divrei Ayam? Right? If it's not being hidden in some place, then what's this Pasuk about? Kilo Sarmisham. It never left the base of Mikdash. That's how we have remez in scripture to the fact that Shlomo Melch created a special place for the Aram to be hidden. And my question of why hide it at this time is answered in the Gemara. The Gemara in Yuma Dafnan Beis, Amid Beis tells us, The Chazal tell us that Melech Yoshia was the one that hid the Aram HaKodesh. Zelefi Shayada Shebechosos is because he knew that, in the end, that at the end of the day, Imagine doing all your forms. Imagine sacrificing your life for the things that you believe in. The tshuva of Yisrael, the Yoshiao did. And the fact that they were doing tshuva, tshuva amitis, a true tshuva. Imagine Yoshiao HaMelech doing this with the knowledge that at the end of the day, there's still, it's going to be for naught. No matter what you do, the deal is sealed. That B'nai Yisrael are going to undergo some sort of an exile, that that's going to happen. It was, it was, again, his forebearer, Chizkiyahu HaMelech, was the one that taught us, according to Chazal, that even if a sharp sword is on your neck, even if death seems imminent, even if destruction seems inevitable, never give up hope. So in a certain sense, Yoshio HaMelech is not giving up hope, but he does know what the Gzeira is. He does know the eventual decree that there is going to be a Galus. The Gemara says, Umi Gonzo, who hid the Aaron Kodesh? Yoshiao Gonzo. Yoshiao is the one that hid it. Ma Ra'asha Gonzo. Maybe the Gemara is asking, I haven't seen in any of the Mepharsha, maybe the Gemara is asking my question, why hide it now? Ma Ra'asha Gonzo, he's in the middle of doing tshuva with everybody. Yoshi, during this time, Yermio is going to be calling for reunification, telling Yisrael, Shuvu Banim Shovavim. Come back, let's reunify, let's fix this. Everybody, let's, let's do tshuva together, both the kingdoms, despite the differences, despite what happened in the days of Achaz. Nevertheless, Ma Ra'asha Gonzo, Ra'asha Kasuf. He saw that was written, again, in the Sefer Habris, in Sefer Dvarim. Yali Chashem Ha'ischa so he saw the Pasuk in Devarim that already foretold of the eventual Gullus, that already foretold of the eventual exile. And he said, better that the Aram Kodesh be hidden away and not taken into Gullus to Khalil undergo any sort of bizyon, to undergo any sort of, um, of, of degradation. The Aram has to be spared that. And that's why Dafka at this time, even with all the hope for the future, but Dafka specifically now, the Aram Kodesh is hidden. I'm going to tell you, uh, we're coming up on the tail end of our time. I'm going to t- give you a little preview of what we're going to do, like a TV show, Lahav Deal, right? Uh, previously on Savior Yermia, and uh, in the next episode, we're going to be talking about what this prophecy is. Have you seen Yermia? Have you seen what the Northern Kingdom did? Have you seen what happened to them? Have you seen how bad it got for them? That they went under every, high mount- under every tree and on top of every high mountain to play the harlot, 
to stray from God? Have you seen this? And that's going to translate into a magnificent prophecy in chapter 3 of Sefer Yermia of bringing back Go and tell the north. Tell the northern kingdom. This prophet, this young prophet from Anatot is sent directly, his first mission, to the Assyrian-dominated, desolate of its people, northern kingdom, the remnants, the Sheris Apleta that was there to bring them back. And it's going to have the shocking account from Yermia, shocking at least for the people in Malchus based David who thought, well, at least we're not the northern kingdom. He's going to tell them that they're worse. He's going to tell them that they're more evil than the northern kingdom. He's going to tell them that the onus is on them to do tshuva. And this prophecy is going to directly parallel the prophecies of Nechama that, that Yermiao says in chapters 30 and 31, some of the most iconic and most beautiful verses of, uh, of, of, of all of Tanakh, really. Uh, that we say during the Yamin Noraim davening, talk about the, the youth of Ephraim, the beauty of Ephraim, Rachel mevakab aleha, Rachel waiting for her children to, to return. So we're going to see, we're going to see these beautiful prophecies paralleled in chapter 3, and later on in the prophecies of Nechamav of Yirmiyahu HaMelech. But od chazon lemoed, there will mir be much more time to learn. Uh, I want to thank everybody.